Hi, y'all. My name is Kerwin Ray, and you are listening to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray, the man who talks at a mile a minute. But in this episode, I sit back and I ask some incredible questions as I interview John Fitzgerald. Let me tell you something. This man has been in the game of property for longer than almost anyone that I've ever met. And most importantly, he's going to give you the insights and you the know-how, not just on property, but how he built an incredibly successful business off the back of it. This one's going to blow your freaking mind. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable a man who I first heard about almost, I think it was about 20 years ago. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Seven Steps to Wealth. And you were also a big on the infomercials at the time. I was. Yeah, I was. really big at the time. Ladies and gentlemen, John Fitzgerald. Mate, it's great to have you here. Fantastic to be here, Kurt. Mate, really I, I, I've followed your story for a whole range of reasons because I remember... I was in a job, I was working for Franklin Covey at the time and I, and I got turned on to property investment and I started reading you know, all these property investment books and yours was one of the first that I started to read. Um, and it, it had a, I remember it had a profound, what I really loved about it, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, it was actually the simplicity of it. Yeah. Like it was a really simple step-by-step, follow the bouncing ball user's guide to how to invest in property. I actually just dictated it in three hours. Is so, that right? Yeah, I, I'm one of those people, I'm not an academic in any way whatsoever, and I wanted to write almost real estate for dummies. And, and, and also something that, that anyone could use as a, as a tool for motivation as well. Yeah, so right. step one, for example, is growth. Yep. And, and step one in, in anything you do is, hey, today I'm going to grow you know, a, a fraction. Yep. So step one, growth. How do you grow in real estate? Land, land content. So my concept was to explain it simply. So I dictated it in three hours. Wow. And then it took my editor three months to, to, <laughs> yeah. to unravel it and, and uh, unjumble it. And I know that book's been revised, I think, about seven or eight times. Yeah. Now. How yeah. many copies has that actually sold? Over a quarter of a million copies wow. now. Wow. Mm. Well done, mate. Yeah. And then I remember seeing you, and this is where I really started to pay attention because I've always been a bit of a marketer, a direct response. And then um, I was always interested in the infomercial game. And then I, I think it was it was because you were doing the after hours infomercials, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. Late night television, coming home, you know, uh, pie in one hand, hot dog in the other. Yeah. After a big <laughs> night on the turfs, turning the TV, and I was like, "Fuck, he's on TV as well." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a crazy time because the guys from Danos got a hold of me and said, "You know, John, we love what you do. Why don't you do a pack and wheel team with Danos?" And for for like a short time I teamed with Danos and realized that it was just a different direction we were going in. So I decided, look, I'll, I'll do my, carve my own out and do property and motivation um, as well as, um, as well as take people along for the journey, so to speak, because I really wanted to engage. And that was, that was fantastic for us. You know, we'd get a half hour, yeah. this is back in the day, back in the day, half hour on channel 10 or channel seven for like two and a half or $3,000. You know, and, and then you'd be on or after <laughs> the hour of power, you know, or Anthony Robbins or something Robbins, like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> All that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, that's golden. And so uh, I think what's interesting about your story, like you, um, you started with nothing, but you end up building a hundred million dollar empire. And, you know, the thing that I, I find fascinating, you know, remembering your book and, you know, you know, following you as I have for the last 20 years, it wasn't until I started to do, do my research for this interview that I started to go, shit, you've actually got quite, quite, a, quite a story. And look, maybe some of it's in the book and, I, and, I've, and I've forgotten it, but where did it all begin? Because you're now this, you know, you're now probably one of the most successful property investors we've got in our country. You've not just been a great, a successful property investor, you've also been a very successful business owner. And those two don't often go necessarily hand in hand. So you've actually really commercialized it. But where did it all begin? How did you get involved in the game? Uh, do you know what? I, I brought up in Melbourne. Um, Dad died in a car accident when I was eight years old. At age 10, oh, wow. I was sent to boarding school. Age 15, I was kicked out of school. 
and age 16, I hitchhiked from Melbourne to Queensland. And that was sort of starting a new part of my life. And I, I was starting... It, it, the, 16's the, quite young. 16 was young, Why, yeah. why bailing so early? Mum and five kids. There was just nothing for me. I think I'd have to say, you know, there are two types of people in this world. There's a heart people and the head people. I'm very much a heart person. And I just didn't feel that there was something for me in Melbourne. Yeah, right. I didn't know where I was going to go. Because by that stage, by the way, I'd never been outside of Victoria. You know, we weren't wealthy. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'd never been outside of Victoria. But I heard, you know, hey, there's, um, there's girls walking down the main street of Surface Paradise in bikinis. That's enough for and any I said, 16 yeah, year old boy, isn't it? At really? 16, I'm going. You know, because <laughs> I, I went to boarding school in Ballarat. Yeah, and right. And the, the, the opposite of that would be Surface Paradise. Yeah, right. So I hitchhiked. In fact, four of us were going to hitchhike. The three pulled out, and I said, no, I'm, I'm going. I went to, went to the Gold Coast, and I just felt the, the, the buzz and felt the, you know, it was going through a property boom. And I thought, you know what, for someone who doesn't, not an academic and doesn't want to go to university, how can I make real money? That, that was the question. Yeah, right. And there was only two so things. So you were tuned on pretty early, the whole concept of making money. Well, it was, it was survival more than anything because yeah, I right. had 200 bucks. Yeah. And I didn't want to go and work for, you know, 10 bucks an hour or something. You know, I, I didn't want to be that person. So I, wanted the, to be, I wanted to be the person that, that worked harder than anybody else and worked smarter than anybody yeah, else. Right. So at age 17, 16, 17, was it about building wealth or was it about survival at this point? Or, or did you have this void? You know, because I know for myself, I grew up, you know, single mum on a pension. And so I had this void of money. And so from as long as I can remember, I was like, fuck, I want to make money. I want yeah. to make a lot of money because I never had it. Was that how it kind of ran for you? Or was it literally just, I just need to be able to put food in mouth? No, no, not it, for me. It's never been a survival. For me, it's how can I be the best I can be? Yeah, you know, right. Every day I ask myself, and I always have, how can I reach my full potential? You know, have I reached my full potential? How can I go one inch closer? And I felt that reaching my full potential as a 16 or 17 year old, uh, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 25. That's yeah, what right. I want to do. So you set that intention. That, that was my intention. Yeah, right. And, and, and then, okay, how, how do I do that? Well, first of all, I've got, to, I've got to find out who millionaires are. Well, the millionaires on the Gold Coast were property people. Yeah. So, and my first mentors were Jewish property moguls who, you know, they taught me just fantastic habits. Habits, you know, frugality. Like. Oh, well, well, no, mostly actually, success is just repetition. Right. Do two things every day you don't like doing. There's only truth in numbers, and they just drilled it into me, drilled it into me, drilled it into me. There's only truth in numbers. Success is repetition, and most importantly, do two things every day you don't like doing. Learn to like your dislikes. Yeah. Right. And you know, as a 17 year old, what I didn't like, I didn't like getting up early, and I didn't like knocking on doors. So you know, my mentor, okay, get up every morning at 6 a.m. And go and knock on doors. You know, and I thought, shit, no, that's, that's to have a 17 year old. That's the worst thing in the world. And it was only when I learned to like my dislikes. And this is an interesting mm. concept from a brain perspective because we have our left brain and our right brain. Your left brain will fight every tooth and nail. We'll say, you know, this guy's using you. This is the wrong thing. This doesn't work. You know, you're just, you're just a, a patsy, all that. That's your left brain. Your right brain is your creative mind. And it wasn't until, it, was, it took me three months for my left brain, where I, I literally gave up, and, and then my right brain kicked in and said, you know what, you could actually learn to like to, your dislikes. You could learn to like knocking on doors. How? By making their day. So I got really good at knocking on doors. And to be honest, I'm still knocking on doors now, but they're in China or Singapore or all over the yeah, world, right. you know, uh, uh, capital markets and things like that. So age 17, you're knocking on doors. And I'm going to assume the, the, the Jewish friends, mentors that you had acquired, they were developers. Yep. 
and you were knocking on doors looking for sites. There we go. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was the king of of land, and I, you know, from surface to burly, I was just digging up sites, digging up sites, digging up sites, and it paid really well. But I realised that I wanted to be that developer as well. So I wanted yeah. to, and I wanted to um, to play the markets. So get active in relation to real estate as well as passive. Yeah, right. So I'm curious, like the thing that's popping in my head right now, you know, age 17, you've gone to the Gold Coast on your own. Uh, I'm curious, as a young bloke, you know, your father passing at age eight, that must have been quite an impact at that early age. Or were you not too close with him? Oh, no, no, Dad. I, I love Dad. Well, there was five kids, uh, you know, uh, Irish Catholic family. Yeah. And uh, Dad died in a car accident. And it was obviously very, very sudden. And yeah. then Mum... Mum was a 41-year-old single uh, mother, and Dad had a couple of menswear stores. She had to take over the stores, but couldn't look after the three older boys, so sent us to boarding school. And right. I'd honestly say that, that the, the um, first time I ever remember deep anxiety where, you know, inside your stomach yeah. was when I was nine years old and, and two teachers came to the house to tell me that, um, John, uh, you have to go to boarding school now. And you have to skip grade six and uh, go into grade seven at, uh, at uh, boarding school at St. Patsy in Ballarat. And that was, that was the, un, the most, most daunting time. Because as an eight-year-old... Almost dad, even a little bit traumatic. You know, you oh, just yeah. lost your dad and mm. then you've been sent away from your family. Mm. That must have been tough. Mm. Look, it, it was tough, but I'm a, I'm a person that looks forward all the time. Yeah. I don't look back. You know, I don't understand trauma. I don't understand, you know, adversity. You know that might have happened in the past, but it didn't. It didn't affect my future. It just made, it just gave me some anxiety that I thought, okay, I've got to make something of things myself. Yeah, right. I can't really be reliant on the rest of the world falling into place for me. So going through boarding school, then it was it was fairly clear that I wasn't going to follow the path of a lot of the other kids who were going to work for the government or yep. go to university. No, I'll cut my own path. I'll try and cut my own path and find my own way. And so when you, you hooked up with this developer, um, it sounds like he was a mentor. Was there almost like a bit of a, like a father-figure relationship Yeah, yeah father-son relationship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, and they were fantastic. They were, um, you know, when, when I was 21, 22 and, you know, wanted to break out on my own, they loaned me $3 million at 20% no interest. Oh, Is this, what, what, what are we talking here? I'm, Late I'm, 80s? I, um, no, this is Early 90s? Ni- uh, 1985, 86. Okay, yeah, mm. right. So they loaned me three million dollars, twenty percent interest, and Shit. and but I was the gun. I was yeah. I, I had to prove myself. Yeah. You know, a lot of people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll take the three any day. I'll take the three. I'll give you twenty percent on it and fifty percent of the profit. At the end of the year, and this was the most amazing thing. At the end of the year, I gave them their three million back plus twenty percent. Plus, we'd made another two point two million dollars by wow. buying and selling a property. And um, I said to them, I said, okay, let's, let's divvy it up. Give me my check for a million. And they said, that's not how it works. I said, what do you mean? And I said, we've, we've done a deal. I'll take my mill and I'm off. I'll do my own thing. I said, no, 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 you're, you're, you're on us now. You know, if we've had success together, we work together. So go and make some more money. And I said, yeah, but what about my million? What do you need that for? I said, oh. I, you know, well, I want to buy a house. They said, how much is a house? And I said, oh, I want 400000 I want 400000 to buy a waterfront house. So they got a checkbook and wrote me a check for 400000 and said, here, go and take your 400000 and go off and let's make some real money now. 
and and that was wow. that, that that was the the, 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 the not only the double down but it, it was it was necessary for me because I think you do need mentors I think you need yep. I think you need mentors all the people that you can you can go to just for that you know keeping you in line asking you questions pointing you in right directions all of that now they, they've all died now they've uh, you know died in the last uh, eight or ten years and my mentor my latest latest mentor is um, is dr. Ron farmer who's 80 this year and my other mentor is George Margolis, 91. So mentors have been a big part of of, yeah, right. of me getting ahead because they did discover me at age 16, 17, 18. Yes, I was a person who had a lot of uh, discipline and had a lot of energy, but you know, not a lot of knowledge. But I think they liked that. I think that I was like that blank tape that they could they could program. So 23, like you were like 19 when you met these guys, 18, 19 yep. when you met your first mentors. You mentioned discipline there. Did you already have a bit of a discipline wiring from the boarding school? Yeah, I, I was very disciplined. You know, very, very disciplined. And also also willing to take advice and, and take advice, you know, based on what they told me. Yeah. You know, some people say, um, uh, if 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 a coach tells you to do it, will you actually do it? Yeah. If a coach tells me to do it, I'll actually do it. Yeah. You know, I, I won't muck around. If I respect them, if they've been there, done that, then I will practice that. Now, I find with most people, discipline's tipi- discipline typically comes as a as a habit that is repeated in some kind of routine with frequency and consistency over time. You know, I see it in our talented, most talented members in our organisation. Typically, people have been, you know, uh, either professional or highly competitive in a in a specific discipline. Where did you learn discipline, or was this something that was you were brought up within the household? Do you know? I think success uh, success comes from um, uh, comes from something inside your heart, not your head. So, so inside my heart, I felt there was something bigger for me. Now, that's really where the discipline started because the only way I knew to achieve anything was through discipline on the sports field or study or anything like that that involved repetition. Yeah, right. And in that regard, you know, I, I, if I have a heart for it, um, then I'll be unstoppable in that regard. Mm. If it's just in my head, it's just not going to happen. So where it came from my heart wasn't the, the need for money or the desperation for money or anything like that. Just this feeling that, you know what, um, I, I, I've, I've got something. I've got something special and I want to have a real crack. But were you like a competitor? Were you, like at school, were you competitive in sports? Were you Highly. Highly. Yeah, highly competitive. What was your discipline? Like what was uh, it? My, I, I played a lot of footy and yep. uh, did a lot of running, gymnastics. Yeah, um, right. And, and st- still today, you know, I still... Uh, still get on my watt bike and punch out, you know, two fifty to three hundred watts. I still run five k's under 20, 20 uh, minutes. <laughs> I still sort of push myself yeah, as right. much as I possibly can, and played A grade polo for you know over twenty years. And that in, that, that in itself speaks volumes. And I, I guess one of the things I'm curious to know, because you obviously as an educator, you're not just an investor, you're not just a, a developer, you're also an educator. What is one of the things that you see is missing from people? Because you can give the same piece of information to two, you know, two people will buy your book. Read your book. One person will go and make tens of millions of dollars over the next ten years. One person will be fucking just as broke as what they were. What do you think is the key distinction between the two? Um, you've got to think, feel, say, and do. Yeah. One thing. Most people they think one thing, feel something separate to that, say something different, and do something even different to that. So they're going yeah, right. in four directions. They're going mm. northwest, east, and south, and they don't even know where they're going. My view is whatever you do, do it 150%. But make sure you, your heart and mind 
Um, and every part of you is fully engaged. You know, we call it the ABC, awareness, okay? Yeah. Awareness of those four things. Belief, yeah, I'd believe in it, but conviction, mm. conviction is where you're really living it. It becomes, it becomes your religion, so to speak. And that's where I see most people is a difference. You know, and they get caught up in their head. They yeah. read this, they read that. You go from here to there and they just don't, they just not committed as as individuals so they they read about you know property investing and then all of a sudden they learn to read about flipping properties the next thing they're talking about reading about property options and they become scattered so 20 23 24 you've done your first deal uh you don't you take your 400 grand out to buy your, your waterfront front property what comes next Oh, look, I did a series of, did, you know, thousands of transactions after that. And probably, you know, I've done much more than 10,000 transactions. Wow. But mostly, mostly development, development subdivisions, um, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, all over the place. And um, I I was sort of going to box myself in to be the property developer yeah and i suppose the big change was then my mentor and this is a this is a great thing about mentors when i got you know because i made made you know money very quickly good at it when i was 25 or 26 years old my mentor knocked on you know my door and said hey john you know you're a bit out of control because i've got the waterfront house so i reached my goal yeah you know and uh, i said what do you mean he said mate you're 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 just a bit out of control you're becoming a dickhead I said, oh, really? So he it said, started going to the head, did it? Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you need to learn to practice humility. And, and I thought, well, what, what does that mean? What is humility? What is practicing humility? What's the difference between learning humility and practicing humility? And he said, you need to find that out. And he said, I want you to put in a large chunk of your income every year. This will put you on the treadmill into working with charity. Pick a charity. Pick something that you've got passion for. So I did. I, because I was the, 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 the youth at risk, the, the single mom, dad died, all that sort of thing, I thought I'll work with youth at risk. And um, I, can, I, I put in two-thirds of my income at the time, about $200,000 a year. I was earning about three hundred grand a year. It's a lot of money back then. It's like earning a million yeah. a year now. And I put two-thirds of my income into, first of all, we started a house in Sydney. I was living in Queensland. I started a house in uh, in Sydney, Reverend Bill Crew, the, the, the older one, uh, gave us a great house. And we ran that for a few years, then moved the house to Queensland and then started schooling and education because we realised that was the missing link. Mm. And I think, you know, when I talk, when I think, when someone says to me, you know, the, the definition of humility, it really is when I spend time at the school and I go there every uh, this is the, the Tagulawa Children's Home now? Yeah, yep. well, Tagulawa School. It's a yep. school, we've got 100 kids. They've all been kicked out of mainstream schools. Right. And um, so some of them haven't been to school for a couple of years. And they've all got, uh, they've all got a, a degree of trauma in their past. They're, some of them are with docs, Department of Child Services, foster parents, or alternatively, you know, a single parent or some with their grandparents. Um, you know, I've even had kids living in cars with their with their mom, and you know, it's just a just just a um, just a very sad situation. But we get them to our school. We teach them meditation. We teach them to live in the heart. Tagulawa no actually shit. means a place in the heart. Aboriginal word which means wow. a place in the heart. And I started this because my mentor literally knocked on my head and said, "Hey, um, you need to you need to learn and practice humility." and <laughs> Um, that's been that's been probably the, the the greatest thing I've ever done. And taking my eye off the, the 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 hammering of I need to be a billionaire, I need to be this, I need to be that, I need to be that. I don't need to do anything. 
you know yeah. I, I just say you know what I'm uh, I've got one school I'd like to do another school and another school and that's that's where I see uh, myself actually making a contribution your I legacy I, yeah I don't see I don't see the property side you know yes I've written a book and I'm coaching thousands of people in property but I see the, the real contribution in the um, in the youth at risk mm. so is it almost like now you're more driven by the legacy of the school than you are of the the legacy of having a billion dollar port- portfolio doesn't the billion dollar portfolio to me is no, no great interest yeah. to be honest um, I, I I do want to encourage Australians because I see Australians retiring with you know nothing yeah you know six out of seven of them every week six hundred yeah. out of seven hundred retiring with nothing or next to nothing and I see it's crazy because we've got the largest population growth we've ever seen in Australian history and on top of that we've got our best performing asset in Australia which is our land yeah not property land. And the difference between um, real estate and property is that real estate's the the land. Yeah. That's what appreciates. The the property that sits on top of it depreciates. But a lot of people don't know it or fully understand it. So I I, I am uh, I am driven by educating that group. And I have a, a great group of of clients. You know, CEOs of banks, heads of companies, but also you know plumbers. Every Australian you can imagine who's building a portfolio. Now, two, three, four. Some of them with 19, 20 properties. On the other side of it, in my school, the 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 real thing that I really um, work hard at is trying to stamp violence and bullying out of our school. Yeah, nice. And that's a that's that's one that that uh, that in the back of my mind, if if you ask me, Kerwin. What has been what has been the driver, but also been as a, your driver is also sometimes your downfall as well. The driver has been that competitiveness, but the competitiveness can become violent, you know, because we become aggressive towards people, or we get angry within ourselves, and that's a form of violence. Mm. So I, I just um, think, how can we? And, and part of our our, our ritual at the school is to practice what we call non-violence. What is non-violence? Is it's not even the thought of any um, competition or, or me thinking above or below you in any way whatsoever. That's an experiment we're still doing in the school. We, we count the days without violence now uh, yeah, at the school. Right. And remember, all these kids, we call them mad, bad or sad. They've all come from, um, from, uh, from a, a broken... A dysfunctional background. Yeah, Yeah. a a broken background. And and that may be a school situation. They may have, you know, been violated. They may, you know, may may have had a lot of things happen. But what we find is that they come along and we teach them meditation. We teach them the place in the heart. And inch by inch, I see we're getting to a stage where we'll have a full term of no violence and then a a full year without violence. And 100 kids... That's going to be that's going to be an amazing What's the celebration. The age the age bracket. They're eight eight years old to fifteen. Yeah, right. Mm. And you're teaching them meditation every day. What yeah. type of med- what style of meditation? Uh, look, we is pract- it just mindfulness? Or? Yeah, it's just really mindfulness. But um, our headmaster, he's um, he's a lay Benedictine monk, and he and I um, often go to India. Um, and I, I practice, and uh, Ron and Sue Farmer practice Kriya Yoga, which is a is a, um, a meditation in itself. Yep. So we use different techniques, yep. um, but but essentially we get them to slow their breath down, and then to slow their brain waves down. And if we can slow their 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 breath down, because a lot you know most take you know between twenty and twenty six breaths a minute. So if we get their their breath down to say eight to twelve beats a minute. Um, it'll slow their brain down, and if we can get them to see the cracks between the thoughts, 
that's where they'll get the 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 true connectedness, the true the true feeling, you know, of the of spirituality. So meditation, mindfulness, spirituality. That sounds like it's quite a, a big part of your life now. Oh, it's, it's it always has been. So yeah. when did it enter? Was it a, was it something that's always been there? Because you grew up in a in an Irish Catholic church. It was spirit. It was a religion at first, but then turned spiritual in nature. Or no, you know, the, I, I I and this is a bizarre thing, and I don't talk about it much. But the day my dad died, I told him that I wasn't going to see him again. And it was, a, it was a bizarre thing. I went up to him and I, it was at the, um, the garage. And I remember saying goodbye and um, he had to go um, overnight to Shepparton to see my, my brother who was in hospital. He'd burned his leg. And I went and gave Dad a, a hug and a kiss and said, Dad, um, goodbye. I'm not seeing you again. No, no, I'll be back tomorrow. And I went to Mum and said, Dad's not coming back. So somehow I knew that there was something else there. Okay. Yeah, some, something else there. Yeah, right. And then ironically, when I went to boarding school and um, around about age 12, 11, 12, 13, I just, just felt this intuition. And, you, you know, we all have this intuition mm. or deja vu. I just felt this intuition that, you know what, there, there's, there's, there's somewhere I need to be and not be and I'll follow my heart or my, my intuition in that regard. And that led me then to investigating um, different spirituality. Um, and back when I was 15, Transcendental Meditation was going, doing the rounds, massive. Yep, yep. You know, and uh, the Beatles and, and uh, people after that made it, made it very famous. So I studied Transcendental Meditation, then um, various uh, silver mind dynamics and various things like that, and found a real, a real peace and contentment and where it led me was it led me to Kriya Yoga, which was, um, it's a very famous um, book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Parama, Paramahamsa. One of my Yogan, favorite books. Yeah, Yogananda. Yeah. And Yogananda talks about Kriya Yoga, and it's the only yoga that, um, uh, that they spoke about in the, in the Yoga Sutras, um, that Kriya Yoga was the first yoga. And it led me to Kriya Yoga and led me to a, a fantastic teacher or, or guru in, um, in, Ameri- in, um, in India, and he and I spent a lot of time together and I, I go to India every year and I've been up into the Himalayan mountains and had some just crazy experiences. I mean, crazy experiences that, you know, the, of, uh, of this feeling and of connectedness that I believe goes to the root of, of our spirituality, that we're all just connected, mm. you know, and, and if you find that stillness in your mind, it's stilling your thoughts and then you'll feel, feel the connection with everything and every, everyone. And that's what meditation is to me and why it's so important and so special to me. And if you, you, you've linked them together, but I'll ask because it sounds like it is quite a, a conscious connection. Have you identified a very conscious link between meditation and, and intuition? Oh, I'm sure, yes. Yeah, I, I think so. Meditation, meditation is, is a state of no thoughts, no mind, and where you're connected to everything and everyone. And therefore, you, you, know, you don't have this feeling of time, present, past, future, anything like that. And once you feel that, you know, it's, it's like feeling that abundance. That, it's blissful. You know, that, yeah. that, that's really blissful. And um, I go up into the Himalayan mountains and I do that because it's, it's hypoxic. So, you know, your, your breath has to be shortened at 4,000 meters. Yeah, and right. it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's just an amazing experience. Wow. I'd, I've never actually heard that before, doing meditation altitude hypoxic. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So you actually find it's a different experience at altitude. Oh, massive. Yeah. You're, look, you're, you're, wow. in fact... When we're walking up the mountain, when we're climbing the mountain, your, your heart rate's going through the roof because yeah. you're thinking, geez, you know, I can't, can't move, can't walk. Particularly, you get above 3,000. Sometimes yeah. you get the headaches and all that sort of thing. And when you get to 4,000, everything slows down. Everything absolutely slows down. And, um, you know, after I, I had an experience 
in a cave right at the top of the mountain once of all things where I just, you know, had this out-of-body experience, you know, amazing things happening. And I was crying like a baby for four days. Wow. <laughs> I came down the mountain, I was just crying like a baby for four days. So just a massive spiritual just release. Just something that, 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 that I felt. You know, and, and we talk, go, go back in, in, uh, in, uh, to uh, the interesting part about the Western philosophy. You know, um, Western philosophy was, um, was probably predicated on the I think, therefore I am. Mm. You know, I, I think, therefore I am. And a lot of the schools, I think, therefore I am. I would say our philosophy should be, I feel, therefore I am. Because unless you actually feel it, unless you feel everything, mm. you're, 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 you're somewhat, um, you're just not participating. You're not, not a part of it all. And I know some very wealthy guys, you know, billionaires, who have lost their sense of feeling. You know, it's all, it's all just the adrenaline of the rush of making money, and they love making money, and that's what gives them the, the rush. But they seem to have lost that sense of, of actual feeling, you know, feeling around them. Wow. Mm. Okay, so you're 24, 25, you've, you've turned over a few deals now. At what point did you make the move and you've, you've opened the school, you're working with youth at risk. At what point did you go, you know what, I see a greater opportunity here to start educating people at, at large? Well, it was seven years after I started the the charity, the school, okay. and I realised. So you're that, in your early thirties at this point. Uh, yeah, I was I was um, thirty five. Okay. Um, and I realised that you know what, um, for me to create the, something where the school will go on beyond me, yeah. I need to create people who can help fund the school, beneficiaries. Yeah. So the best thing I can do is teach people how to be a millionaire, a multi millionaire. And by the way, a percentage of them will then, you know, maybe get involved with the school. So I decided to, I, I looked at all the books on, on real estate and it just amazed me how no one ever spoke about, you know, land, compound growth. Think truths that I knew that just took for granted, you know, from my Jewish mentors, buy property, never sell. When it grows, buy another one. You'll get compound growth. And when I spoke to people, what's compound growth? I you know, I don't know. And... And I thought that's just amazing. It's 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 repetition, but it's the benefit of continued repetition. Most people give up ninety percent mm. before they click over their goal, and uh, and I thought that's uh, that's uh, amazing. So I wrote a very simple book, or I should say, I dictated a very simple book, got it cleaned up, made sure it was in you know simple simple terms that anyone could read, a fourteen year old could read, a seven steps to wealth, and then that launched um, me talking about property. But I realized that the missing link was actually the motivation. And when I say the motivation, people had it in their heads, but they didn't have it in their hearts. The why. Yeah, the why. Yeah. You know, and that's what motivation is. It's the why you're going to do it. Why are you going to do it when it, when it gets out and rain? Why are you going to run that 5Ks when it's raining, when it's, when, it's, when, it's, when it's pouring down with rain? Why are you going to do it then? It's easy to do it when it's pleasant, but why are you going to do it when, you, when it's not? That's the, that was what was missing. So I had to, had to dig into that, and I looked into my yoga and my spirituality to find that sense of, of connectedness. Yeah, right. And so it was a very conscious decision. You've, you've launched the book. Did you launch the book with the idea of launching an education company at the same time? Never, never. It was just the book started doing really well? Yep. The book started doing really well and I just thought, look, if people come and take a step towards me, yep. um, they do. If they don't, they don't. Um, but then there was just so many people taking steps towards me. The radio was going nuts. This was the boom of 1998, 99, 2000. Yeah, and that right. was probably one of their biggest biggest cycle markets. So, you know, I was on radio, on TV, on this and that. And then, then it was really the... 
the guys from Danos who said, listen, we've got half-hour spots that we can get you if you've got a pack because, because, because. And I thought, you know what, uh, it feels right. It feels the right direction to go in. Um, and, and that really then launched uh, me investigating, how do I get somebody who hasn't connected the dots on head and heart? How do I connect the dots on that? And literally a lot, a lot of what we were doing was stuff that Dr. Ron Farmer was teaching at our school, um, was, was connecting those two dots. Yeah, Thinking, right. think, say, you know, feel, do, one thing. Yeah, right. And so by sounds of it, it took off a, a lot more. Did it take off when it took off? Because obviously you built that to $100 million at one point. Um, that business is still going strong today? Yeah, you're still going very, very strong. But I, my, I have my own business and then I have a coaching business. The coaching business, right. um, you know, we, we have thousands and thousands of clients all over Australia. And in a lot of times you have to shut the doors and say, listen, we can't take new business. Yep. So we go through stages of not being able to take new business because we've got a commitment. If someone comes and buys, you know, gets a property off us in, in one state, as it grows, we duplicate to the next, the next, the next. So we can shut the doors on new clients and, yep. and open them. We just have to do it from time to time. It creates a natural demand. Yeah, but then I have my own portfolio of commercial and um, and residential and, and rural property uh, that you know is built up over the years. Because I, I I'm doing what I'm you know telling people to do as well. Yep. Because you're doing property as a business, but then all of a sudden you become the educator and the coach, and like building a million dollar business from. And again, the statistics I'm sure you're probably aware <clears throat> it takes on average in this country over ten seven to ten years to build a million dollar country a million dollar business. But most businesses, about 4.6% of businesses actually survive in the first five years and there's less than 1.8% that survive by year 10. You didn't build a million dollar business, you built a hundred million dollar business, which is quite substantial. I'm curious to know perhaps some of the psychology and maybe also explore some of the mechanics of how you actually did that because that's no small feat. That puts you in the top, you know, 0.0001% of entrepreneurs when it comes to building a business. I think, you know, the, the key is going to be your relationships and your collaboration. Yep. And um, there was a great study by Harvard. And, you know, I, I, I would say because I've been doing this for 35 years, so it didn't happen overnight, by the way. I've been, yep. I'm, I'm 55 now and I've been, I started when I was, in fact, 17, 18. But when, do you mind if I could just stop quickly and say from when you be- launched the book and became an educator, how long did it take to build the 100 million? 20, tw- uh, probably probably 10 years. It probably was 10 years. Yep. And um, I think the the reason I was able to do it is because I had a great network mm. within real estate. Because I'd done so many thousands of transactions, I just knew everybody in real estate, everybody in finance, everyone in valuations, and I was able to pull that network together as a collaboration. And, uh, you know, I've got to say I've got great people over the years you know my, my financial control has been with me for 25 years wow yeah. that's and, and you know i've got people in my office who have been with me for 10 15 20 years um and we've got a great bunch of people and a great network outside of our our group as well where we we just work with people as many uh, as much as we possibly can and it connects us in every state um, um, so if, if we want to know something about property or about somebody, it's just one phone call away for yeah, us. Right. And um, you know, I, I think that's a that's a key because you've got to have that accountability. You've got to have the the um, collaboration, and most importantly, you've got to have initiative. You've got to be able to knock on doors. You know, mm. they're they're the three things. And accountability means you've got to deliver. You know, I've been successful because my clients have made you know over a billion dollars, $1.5 billion wow. out of their property. Um, because of our collaboration, we work with 
all the major property developers, all the major uh, financiers, all the major banks, we, we just work with them all. And then having the initiative to go and actually get out, knock on doors, do deals, uh, that's, that's a cultural thing. And I find, you know, quite interesting, most Australians, interestingly, are, uh, are reactive. We're very proactive. We see something, we, we go and have a, have a shot. We go and investigate it. If it fails, it fails. And we fail a lot, but we fail very quickly. And then we move on. You know, but, but then when we get the formula right, we really go to town on that. So that's, um, that's, that's having that initiative to continually push those boundaries, continually push through. And all businesses need to do it. You know, similarly, all teams, you know, mm. like, a, like a, a, um, a football team. You can't be playing the way you did two years ago or three years ago because the game has gone beyond you. You know, you've got to be ahead of it. So you must be running. You must be running, you know, have that initiative to, to move faster. And you need to be collaborating with the people who are moving and shaking, you know, at that pace as well. Yeah, right. So when you went from the transition from property business to education business, was there any moments of, holy shit, this is a different animal? You know, property is, you know, it's, it's, it's very solid, it's very reliable, it just sits there, it doesn't talk back to me. You know, now I'm dealing with a lot more in the form of moving parts. Were there any major kind of hiccups in the early stages as you were building the education side of the business? Um, I think, I think the, the lucky thing is I actually um, like and care about people mm. and I'm, uh, I like um, speaking in public as well. Uh, and I'm very much a warts and all. Property's not going to go up every year. You know, you've seen the Sydney cycle go up and then it'll flatline and then go up again. So I'm, I, I pretty much tell people to play the long game. And most of the people who, um, you know, from an education perspective would get angry or, you know, come back and say that doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's because they took, a, took the short game. You know, mm. they expected to buy something and sell it in a year. I've never said that. I've never said it. You should do it. In fact, I said in the book, Seven Steps, if you buy and sell in a year and you think it's a business, then you're pretty much a fool because you're, you know, your in and out costs are maybe 15%. So you know, if you buy it for 500000 and sell it for you know, 600000 you barely make any money out of it anyway. And you might as well use it for compound growth. So I think, I think I, 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 I've tried to differentiate myself and probably yep. not as well at the start yep. that we're playing a long game even though i said it in the first edition of seven steps you've got to play that long game but a lot of people say yes i'm going to play the long game but then they get frustrated after six months a year or 18 months you know it's not working the education you're giving is not working wait on you're not actually playing you're 18 long months game. into a, a that, 50 year game that's you right. Know, you don't look at the, you don't measure the success of a game at uh, a quarter time. Mm. You know, there's still a few quarters to play. I'm more interested in the business side, though. Like, you know, the property side is one thing, but w- what were some of the major hiccups that you you had to overcome, or major adv- adversity that you had to overcome as a entrepreneur? You know, in business, property was the business that was the vehicle. But I'm curious, as you were growing your business, like, what were some of the bigger hiccups that you had to overcome that taught you some really valuable lessons that you think are quite practical that stay with you today? Um. You know, I think the, 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 the most important thing is you're going to have those bad days, obviously. Yep. And you're going to have the, you know, the days where it feels like, you know, you're under attack and that everything's going wrong and all that sort of thing. Just push through it. Um, because those people who play the short game, they will have a, they will have a crack at you, but yep. they'll only have a crack for a short period of time. You know, they won't play the long game. You know, and, and you see people who have been really successful over the years, they've played the long game and they've always, they've always struggled in the short game. You know, and the best property story in, in, in Australia is probably um, Frank Lowy. 
He started Westfield in 1960. Yep. Came out as a cab driver. Well, came out and was working in, um, in you know, in, uh, uh, in Parramatta selling sausages. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, I'm proud to say I've met Frank a couple of times through, you know, my, my connections. Just a, a beautiful human being, but um, determined, really determined. And when they set up Westfield, um, they couldn't, the, the, the stockbroker couldn't raise the money. But the stockbroker, stockbroker um, underwrote it, so he put in the $150,000 to get them up and running to do their first Westfield. Now, if you had have invested in Westfield, and, you know, they, they couldn't get finance from banks because they were building shops. They, they, were, they, were, they were really forming and shaping a vision of the future, and no one was on board. In fact, it, it, it took a long time for them to come on board. But Frank really did stick to his guns on it. And when people actually came on board, then it went from powerhouse to powerhouse. If you had have invested $1,000 in Westfield in 1960 and sold out when he sold out last year, you would have got a check for $450 million. <laughs> now, there's, yeah. nothing, there's nothing actually you can show me. That, that's, not, that's not a story about the stock market. It's yeah. actually a story about um, two things, building a great business, but a land-based business. Mm. And how in the first you know, five to 10 years, you are going to be challenged. But you just, you just, it should, should be just water off a duck's back. Remember, you're playing the long game. Same as if we're playing sport, competitive sport, you're going to get niggled and hassled and all that sort of thing. But after the first quarter, it gets less and less and less. And by the last quarter, they're just holding on. You know, mm. they're just struggling. That's the, game, that's the game that I think we all should be playing. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made as an entrepreneur? Um, I, I've backed myself and where I shouldn't have. You know, and, and I suppose the, the biggest mistake I ever made, I lost a million bucks on, I was buying a, um, a subdivision. I always buy property subject to approval. And I thought I was going to get approval. And I was two months away from approval. And then my contract was up. So I, um, I went unconditional and I didn't get approval. And because I didn't get approval, the bank wouldn't finance it. So I lapsed on my contract. Oof. And I, I managed to get con- uh, finance afterwards. This is when I was in uh, my early 30s, I managed to get finance um, afterwards, but yeah. the vendor had sold it to their next door neighbour who was involved with the council that actually caused me to uh, not get my approval. Oh, so I just realised, you know what, um, the, world, the world's not necessarily a perfect place for me. Um, it's, it is a perfect place for me, but you've got to be 360 degree wary. And you've got to realise that there could be per- people working against you, you know, in, in whatever business. So stack the cards. And, the, you know, the mistake I made was going unconditional on a, on, a, on a property that I didn't have approval, that I should have gotten approval and would have and all that sort of thing, but I didn't. And um, they're, they're sort of the, 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 the little things that you, you, you learn from that I'm dis- I should be disciplined enough to know not to make that error. You know, mm-hmm. I should have I should have been disciplined enough to know not to make that error, because um, it's not so much it's a rookie error, but that was greedy. Yeah, right. Mm. So, uh, look, I'm curious to know. You know, I think a lot of people who've studied wealth for long enough realise that the majority of the wealth that is made in a downturn. Uh, I'm curious to know if you subscribe to that theory. Well, um, the, if you understand our markets, particularly residential. Um, you'd see that when Sydney declines, uh, southeast Queensland goes up. And in fact, you know, if, uh, uh, the Gold Coast where I live is a good example. Three times over the last 30 years, the 
Gold Coast median house prices eclipse Sydney, but always within three, two or three years of Sydney's decline. Hmm. And what you see in Australia, interestingly, is that we have different markets. We have Melbourne and Sydney running on a different time cycle, and then the rest of Australia running separately. So you've seen Melbourne and Sydney going gangbusters, nearly doubling the last six, five or six years, now coming off, um, whilst the other markets have been fledging. And what you're seeing now is that Sydney's coming off, Melbourne's coming off a little bit, but the other markets are actually uh, boosted. And they're boosted because of, of numbers, migration, population growth. Because to me, everything, you know, there's only truth in numbers. Mm. So I, I just study, okay, what is the, the population growth in a particular area? What is the migration? Um, what is the land supply? You know, what can come on the market? Because that will drive prices and also the affordability. So I, um, I see there's, there, there's opportunities to make money in real estate. Um, 10 out of 10 years, but you need to go to different markets. Yeah, right. Do you see a meltdown coming in the next uh, three to five years? No, no. You don't? None whatsoever. Wow. Mm. And the reason, and are you talking property or economic at large? Economic at large, yeah. I think, you know, the, the world's actually doing fairly well. And this, this, this argument between China and America shaking things up and Trump's shaking things up. You know, Trump uh, reducing taxes to, you know, 20, 25% has brought $3 trillion onshore into America at a time where America is, is putting interest rates up, which is positive because they realise that the economy is doing well. Now, we're at a stage in Australia, where our unemployment rate's at 5%, our growth rate's up, and we've got the highest migration we've had in Australian history and creating more jobs. You know, last year we created 400,000 jobs. This year we've created nearly 300,000 already. So I, I, I see things, and, you know, this isn't in a time where high inflation. I mean, if we were talking in the 70s, uh, we didn't have this migration, but we might have had job creation. However, we would have had inflation at double digits. Now we've still got inflation at you know three, barely three four percent. Um, so I see a lot of positives in the next you know four or five years. Um, and I see I really you know I'm a firm believer that that Australia should become a big Australia. We should become you know 40, 50 million by 2040, 2050. And the main reason is that we have five percent of the world's land mass today, <laughs> and we 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 barely have half of 1% of the total world's population. And I've been at conferences overseas where they're talking about, hey, the, the world's going to reach $10 billion. And then look at Australia. You know, they've got 5% of the world's land mass and you know, they've, got a, they've got a small, small amount, of, amount of population. I think we need to pull our weight, you know, for our kids and their kids. Yep. And by 20, 2100, we should be maybe at $100 million. Now, for us to do that, we need to get smart. And whilst money's cheap, the government should be borrowing a trillion dollars and building a, a national rail loop, you know, fast train right around the country and building the satellite cities around those particular areas. Oh, that's and, and, and we should be doing that stuff. Now, we have got infrastructure, a lot of infrastructure because we're behind going on now, yep. which is also helping drive that economy. But we should be really biting the bullet to, to you know, to, to build those satellites and build things further. Because I think it was in your book, um, The Seven Steps to Wealth, that you originally talked about how the corridor between Brisbane and the Gold Coast at some point was just going to be, it was going to be the super city. Was yep. that, that was you talking yep. about that, wasn't it? Mm. Which we're starting to see actually coming to fruition now. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which and how does that I guess how does that feel when you look at that in hindsight? Because I remember when I read that in your book, I was like, wow, that's a big fucking claim. Yeah. And now you see it, it it's it's really bridging. Well, do you know what? It's even better for me because I've got I've still got property in that corridor. Yeah, right. But my my first people who read Seven Steps to Wealth said, oh, I want to buy property, where should I buy? So look, buy in this area here, Pimper Man, that, that area there. And they bought a thousand square meters of land. Um, for $66,000, $66 a square meter. That land is now worth about $750 a square meter. So there, there's nothing you can show me yeah. that's performed better. And they've got a house on it that's pay, you know that was renting for $180 a week that's now renting for $500 a week. And they've turned that little investment, that, you know, th- this guy started with $20,000 to buy his first house for $160-something you know, dollars um, and that's turned into you know, over $2 million yeah, simply right. by compound growth and simply by land. So I, I see that, that, that growth area, um, particularly between you know, Brisbane and Gold Coast, that's, a, um, that, that's, uh, you know, that's high on my list and I've got a lot of land in that area. So John's top picks for property right now. So that's one area, the corridor. Where else do you see property being a, a good pick right I'm now? I'm buying in Adelaide, yep. nor- north and west of, of Melbourne in in, in, a, in, a, in a particular bracket, mainly yep. around Mernda Station and, um, you know, where we're in, in Sydney, uh, we picked areas, you know, around the M5, M7. Yep. But a buzz area that we went to was Edmondson Park where we're buying land at $400 a metre that's now $1,200 a metre well, and uh, has done really, really well. Um, so we look for population growth, infrastructure growth. Um, and you know proximity to the uh, the capital cities. So we, we look within those areas, and then for areas that haven't necessarily shown the growth. Um, you know, when we got into Sydney in two thousand and eleven, um, I couldn't convince my Sydney clients to buy Sydney. They said, "No, John, it's a basket case." The median house price in 03 was, you know, five twenty, and in eleven it was five seventy five. So it hardly gone up. I said, "Guys, that, that's when we should be buying." Um, so my Melbourne clients, my Brisbane clients, my Perth clients, Adelaide clients all bought Sydney. Sydney clients didn't jump in until 13, 14. And then Sydney ran till, you know, probably 17, mid-17. And all it's done, it's, it's overshot, come down a little bit. Um, but I actually think that um, you know, Sydney so far this year, I should say, New South Wales created 120,000 jobs already. Mm. Um, there's some massive numbers. You know, so you don't see that, down, that correction lasting for long in Sydney? I, no, I don't at all. No, yeah, right. you know, I, I think that finances is, is a is is a challenge. Well, that's going to be my next question because finances really tightened up. Like the banks have, you know, they've copped a little bit of a kicking over the the the, the inquiry and how things went down. Uh, lending being as tight as what it is, how do you see that playing out in the market? You know, the 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 ba- one thing I know about the banks, they want to make money. They just want to make money. Yeah. you know, so they'll they'll keep their heads down for a bit. And they'll be back, you know, like a range of they'll, they'll Well, they'll, they'll just be back, you know, lending money. And, back, you know, what they might end up doing is setting up their finance companies again, which is what, you know, like Westpac had AGC and and um, ANZ had a Sander and, you know, uh, National Australia Bank had custom credit. And then they could go outside of the banking regulations and just do the deals that supposedly APRA are a little <laughs> bit um, dodgy about. But on top of that, what we're seeing is so much more money come into the country from America particularly, yeah. um, for, you know, uh, and also from Europe and a little bit from Japan um, through the uh, RMBS, which is the, you know, the mortgage-backed securities, into the second-tier banks and also the second-tier lenders. And we're seeing, you know, a big uptake in that. So let's say someone's wanted to get started in the property market. You know, they're a little bit scared off because they've told the, the doom and gloom is coming. They're, they're seeing the headlines in the papers. They want to get started. Sydney has completely priced them out of the market because I think the median here is now, what, a million? About a million. million yeah. bucks. 
what would be your advice to someone if they wanted to get started? Like you'd be saying, okay, first of all, you need to save a deposit. Here's how much I'd save. Mm. And then here's what I'd do from there. What would be John's quick tips? Look, two things. Uh, I'd save a deposit of fifty to dollars to $100,000. And then I'd find a lender that would give me a 95% loan. Um, that, so that depends on your income, yep. um, uh, which is, you know, I'm really going back to what my daughter did when she bought her first property at age 21. Um, she got a 95% loan through, I think, Rams or one of those groups, and she saved up $20,000, and I put in um, 20000 to help her out as well. And that's the other thing. Tap your, you know, if you're young, tap your parents you know, grandparents, anyone for a, for a helping hand. Get started now. Get it get it into your system because the sooner you start, the sooner you'll get into it. Then um, then the better you'll be. Two things in property: cash flow and growth. You should be buying property that after tax costs you no money. You know, you, you shouldn't be shouldn't be putting in 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 your in your pocket to buy property. So to do that, you actually need to claim depreciation and make sure you're getting enough rent to pay your interest costs and lock in your interest costs. And then growth, growth is buying land in high population growth areas with infrastructure. Do that, yeah, and when I say high population growth areas, you know, the average population growth in Australia is around about 1.5 to 2%. Um, I'd be looking at areas of minimum five and you know 10 plus percent. Uh, because then you'll attract the Westfield shopping centres, the mm. railway stations, the schools, all those things. Um, and if you can get a 450, 500 square metre block, particularly in, in certain councils, you know, in probably 15, 20 years, the average size block will be uh, 80 to 120 square metres. Yeah, right. So if you've got a you know, four or 500 square metre block, it might not have one resident, one tenant, it might have four or five. Yeah, right. um, and that's where land's going to become very special the next 20 years with this massive migration that we've got um, happening over the next 20 years to replace our baby boomers retiring. Okay, so let's look at the, the, uh, the other end of the market. You know, someone's running a successful business, you know, they've, they've, they've built up a bit of a war chest, they've got a couple of million bucks in the bank. How would you advise that person to, to invest in property? Would there be a different strategy or would you be saying do the same thing? Um, no, it would be a different strategy because banks banks view those people differently. So you've got to look at um, what your resources are. And when I look at resources, I look at my ability to fund, you know, my, my servicing capacity, my ability to fund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I have three pools of investment. I have my residential housing, um, which goes really well, my commercial property, and then I have my rural property, which is going to be, you know, obviously future urban in, you know, 10, 20 years time. And that's the long game. So someone with business with money in the bank that's, you know, in their 40s that wants to play the long game, you know, for something in their 60s, you you know, I would say maybe look at... um, uh, future urban property on the outskirts of you know one of the main capital cities, um, you know, in particularly the high growth areas, and do your numbers on demographics, and make sure you do your uh, your numbers on the on the environmental as well, your environmental checks, because that's the the one thing that's hurt land over the last 10, 15 years, is that you know if you had a hundred hectares of land, because of environmental constraints now it. It may not all be usable, or for for some people, you know, with too many trees or water going through it, et cetera, et cetera, it may may only have twenty percent of it that's useful. Yeah, right. Fantastic. 
For those people who haven't read your book, The Seven Steps to Wealth by John Fitzgerald, yep. where can they pick up a copy? Get it at any bookshop. Any yeah. bookshop? <laughs> yeah. well, certainly get it at the airport, but, but yeah, get it anywhere. And, um, you know, and go you don't online. just have a book. Do you also provide coaching services as well? Yeah, I do coaching services. You know, I, I, um, uh, you know, we do workshops. I don't do the workshops much anymore, but I do a lot of online webinars and I yep. do private uh, functions. So, you know, just for client functions. Yep. Um, and that's what I spend most of my time doing, you know, just uh, just with the, the clients who, you know, who are with me who are on the on the path of building a portfolio of properties yeah right fantastic and so they can find out more about you in, at where seven steps to wealth.com.au by all means john this this is actually it's kind of been a little bit surreal because as we're talking i remember reading your book fuck i'd love to meet this guy one day <laughs> and that was 20 years ago yeah and uh, and here we are but i've got to tell you mate you are absolutely razor sharp on on everything that you've come up with today and yeah it's been a real honor a real pleasure thank you so much for being you know, on it's, it's been a, a fantastic experience for me as well thank you Karen, and you're doing a great job thanks mate Cheers. really appreciate it there you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. Would love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray.